this point in our service, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and that can be found in the Black Bibles in front of you. Again, that is Romans, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. The word of the Lord. Thanks be Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead. And it is always um, a great honor, a great privilege uh, to be able to open up the word and share it with you. And uh, so this morning I'm excited to continue our study in the book of Romans. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 3, as we just read. And um, I hope and I pray that as we've been going through the book of Romans, it's been fruitful to you, it's been beneficial. Um, here's what I want to say this morning um, as we dive in. There is so much in this little passage, and I obviously, there's no way I can get into every single nuance and detail of even just these eight verses just in our time this morning. So highly encourage you. We have books, available study books uh, for the book of Romans. Pick one of those up. Go through this passage through that. It'll dive into more detail, more depth than we can possibly get into just this morning. But we do want to look together and see what it is that God has to say to us this morning. And um, so let's do that. In, uh, in August of 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama for leading a nonviolent protest in protest of that city and, uh, on the whole, the nation's segregation policies and laws. He was arrested and, and he was placed in the Birmingham City Jail. And while he was there he read in the local newspaper an open letter that had been published by eight local Birmingham clergymen requesting that Dr. King and his organization, his followers, would cease their um, process of nonviolent protests, specifically in Birmingham and then more broadly throughout the South. The undercurrent or the foundation of their criticism was that there were laws in place and there were legal channels for addressing concerns. And so Dr. King and others should not be coming to Birmingham from outside and um, stirring up the citizens and seeking change through what they considered to be inappropriate channels. So while Dr. King's in jail, he reads this letter, this open letter. It's not specifically addressed to him, but he understands it's directed explicitly at him. And being in jail and having the time to do so, he writes a letter in response. 
I want to read you the first paragraph of the letter that he wrote in response. This is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all of the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would be engaged in little else in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. From there he goes on to write, what honestly has been and could be described as a masterpiece of American rhetoric. And I'd highly encourage you to read the entire thing. If you just Google a letter from a Birmingham jail, it's, it's all there and it's incredible. Here's the thing. At this point now, in 2019, when we think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that name is so huge in American history. That man is so well-respected that I think at times it can be hard for us to grasp in the moment, in 1963, the immense amount of, I think pushback is too weak of a word, of resistance, of outright hostility that he faced for his actions and for his ideas. And as he says in that first paragraph that we read, it would have been impossible for him at that point to answer all of those objections. And yet, he understood that there comes a time when you are speaking the truth and you're being met with resistance constantly, there comes a time when objections must be addressed. And in doing so, for Dr. King... Addressing those objections leads to one of the most powerful expressions of the anti-segregation message ever written down on paper. All of that to say this, as we've been reading through the book of Romans, Paul has been laying out a message that to his readers would have been, with all apologies, no less revolutionary in its day. And honestly, to the Jews who would be reading, no less offensive. And the objections that were voiced to Paul as he preached this message were just as strong and just as hostile. And he found himself multiple times writing letters from prison and seeking to lay out a positive vision of the message that had been entrusted to him. And yet, what we see this morning as we come to Romans chapter 3 is that Paul has come to that same place that Dr. King came to in 1963. There are objections. And Paul says, I have to at this point pause and answer some of those objections. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Now, here's the thing. Many of these, this is a shorter passage, these eight verses, 
Much of what Paul touches on here, we're going to see in much more depth as we move on in Romans chapter 8. Excuse me, well, some in Romans chapter 8, some in 9, on and on later on in the book of Romans. But the way this letter is structured, which I can just pause for a section. This letter is structured. When I write a letter, when I used to write letters, I don't, nobody writes letters anymore, right? But when I write an email, I don't structure it. This letter is so amazingly structured. Like, you can outline this letter. I've never written an email that could be outlined. I'm not. But anyway, the way this letter is structured, we've come through basically an introductory section, kind of like point one, and this is a transition point. And at this point, Paul needs to address some of these objections, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So here's what we've covered so far, and here's why the objections are starting to pile up. Up to this point, here's what Paul has said. Our God, this God, the God we serve, the God we believe in, the God who is, is a God of wrath. And to say that sounds, just on its face, sounds frightening, but as we've looked at it, what we've seen is we want to serve a God of wrath. Maybe not if we use the word wrath, but if we use the related term, we want to serve a God of justice. We want a just God because we understand that wrath is the opposite of moral indifference. And none of us wants to serve a God who doesn't care. None of us wants to serve a God who turns a blind eye to evil and suffering. We want a God of justice. But, as Paul has gone on, what we've seen and what he's explained is, because that's true, we all deserve that wrath. All of us. Even if we believe that we have some kind of external, to use Paul's words, righteousness, something that that elevates us, something that, that gives us honor or that gives us glory, that makes us better in some way, Paul says none of those externals matter. And whether it's for the Jews, their external symbol of circumcision, whether it's their ethnicity, their background, the nation they're a part of, the family that they come from, or for us, whatever those externals are, whether it's our behavior or our church attendance or our sense of social justice or whatever externals we have, what we've seen is none of those externals are good enough in comparison to a righteous and holy and perfect God. And internally, we all actually know that. Internally, we know that we fall short. And the shame that we feel because of that drives us further to push harder on the externals to make ourselves look better But Paul's shown that regardless of what you have going on on the outside, that all of us on the inside fall short. Specifically, as Paul's talking through this, and he's talking to a group of, in the main, first century Jews, the idea to them that they in some way are equal 
in deserving God's wrath to everyone else is highly, highly offensive. To first century Jews, their honor, their glory, their pride was in the fact that they were God's chosen people. That God had called them out specifically. That he had made promises to them specifically as a group. That separated them, that made a distinction between them and everyone else. And now Paul is saying to them, there is no difference. All are equal. All are equally deserving of God's judgment. Now, when someone attacks your point of pride, when someone goes after the thing that you believe elevates your honor, that pushes you up, that makes you look better, that is who you are, when somebody attacks what you consider to be your identity, you will naturally, I will naturally get very, at the least, defensive. Most likely, angry. That feeling you feel when a group that you associate with is criticized, when, when the thing that you believe makes you better in some way is shown to be worthless... That anger, that defensiveness. That's what Paul's readers would be feeling at this point. As they've read through what we have divided up, there are no divisions in Paul's original letter, but what we have divided up as the first two chapters of this book, the anger and the frustration and the offense that they would have felt at being told that their point of pride their point of honor, the thing that makes them special is of little to no value in the big picture. Of course, they're going to push back hard. So in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3, Paul answers three related objections. Now, we don't know, and scholars don't know, are these actual questions he had been posed repeatedly? Is he imagining, hey, I know these people, this is what they'd be thinking? Or is it possible that Paul, as a Jew himself, feels these emotions himself? Here's what I know to be the truth. Here's what that seems to imply. But he answers these three big questions that, again, they're going to be more fully answered, but I want to look at how he approaches them now. And as we look at this, here's kind of the big picture for today, okay? We're going to get into the details, but here's the big picture. God's goodness, God's glory, God's faithfulness, God's godness is not in any way diminished by our brokenness or the brokenness of the world around us. That who God is is true regardless of who we are. And what God has done and will do is true regardless of anything we have done or will do. 
And that is a truth that we all desperately need to be true. We'll see what that means as we go on. So here we go. Three objections. Now, let me, let me explain what these objections are as we get into this. Paul has laid out very clearly this idea of all of us being deserving of God's wrath. The, for lack of a better term, the emptiness of religious rituals to bring us closer to God. The relative lack of value of background or ethnicity or any of that in escaping God's judgment. And so here are objections that Paul heard, and here's what we have to understand. These objections, as we go through these, these are not necessarily what his critics believed to be true. These objections are this. This is what his critics, Paul's critics, would say. If Paul, if what you are saying is true, then here is what that would mean. Here are some conclusions that if Paul is right, if chapters 1 and 2 of Romans are true, then therefore, logically speaking, then that would make this true as well. And this, that, these conclusions are so impossible for us to grasp a hold of. They'd be so abhorrent to to our way of thinking and our way of understanding and our conception of how the world works that everything you've said before can't possibly be true. Because everything you've said before leads to this, and we know this is wrong, so therefore the statements that precede it can't possibly be true. Paul's critics don't believe these things are true. They're saying, Paul, this is what you are teaching. And it's wrong. It's just wrong. And so you must be wrong. And so what Paul has to do and this would be extremely frustrating in one sense, but it's, it's good because it allows him to clarify what he means. What Paul has to do is to show not necessarily just that their objections are false, but that their objections are not what he is saying. He has been misunderstood and needs to explain it. So here we go. In verse number one, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? The first objection is this, Paul, if everything you're saying is true, then that would make God into a liar. And here's where this comes from. As Jews, we believe, we understand, we know, we have heard our entire lives, our entire existence as a people, that God chose us, that he called us out specifically as a group of people. And now you're saying, Paul, that there is no difference between us and everyone else. God said there's a difference, and now you're saying there's no difference. So what you're saying, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then God is a liar. And of course, you can follow the logic here. God can't lie, therefore, Paul, you must be lying. But Paul's answer to that is this. I'm not saying there's no distinction. I'm saying the distinction is not what you think it is or what you have understood it to be. Did God make promises to the nation of Israel? Absolutely. Did he refer to them as his chosen people? Yes, he did. Did that mean what they took it to mean? No, it didn't. Look, if you can, if you've got your Bible with you, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. This goes way back.
This is the beginning of all of this. In Genesis chapter 12, God speaks to a man named Abram. We would later come to know him as Abraham. Paul's going to talk about him more later on in the book of Romans. But this is the beginning of all of this. In Genesis chapter 12, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will, here's a promise, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise. And that's the beginning of all of this. And the Jews rightly heard that promise believed that promise, and saw themselves, because of that promise, as God's chosen people. And and honestly, as you read Scripture, as you read the entirety of the Old Testament, it's the story of that group of people and God working through that group of people and fulfilling or working toward the fulfillment of that promise. So, If Paul says, but there's no distinction between you and the Gentiles, is he saying that that promise is not true? Look at what Paul says. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? What does it matter if we're Jews or not? If everybody's equal, what's the difference? Much in every way. The value is much. There is much value. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What does that mean? The oracles of God simply means the word of God. And here's what Paul says. There is a distinction. There is something special. You were chosen by God. And here's what you were chosen for. You were given the word of God. Not as a privilege, but as a responsibility. God spoke to you first so that you would be a light, a model that you could share to the rest of the world his goodness and his glory. The promise to Abraham was that the world would be blessed through his family, through that nation. And Paul says that's what's happening. And that is what has happened. Most explicitly, that is what has happened through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is referred to in the New Testament as the Word made flesh. The oracles of God is the word of God. And the Jews received the law. They received the prophets, got the word of God. They shared it with. But much more than that, much more than all of that is Jesus. And Jesus came to the Jews as a Jew through the nation of Israel to be a blessing to the entire world. And Paul says God is fulfilling his promise. He's fulfilling it through you. It just doesn't look like what you thought it was going to look like. 
we thought, you thought, that God was going to do something that was going to elevate you as a people, to make you look even better than all the other nations. That he was going to proclaim his glory by giving you greater glory. Look at Israel. They're amazing. Look at the Jews. Wow! They're awesome. Paul says that's, that's not the way it works. Look at verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you are judged. God works through our brokenness and our weakness. God blesses the world not through the greatness of what the Israelites have done, but through the absolute worst thing that they ever did which was to crucify Jesus. To reject him in the flesh. To turn their backs on him. To give him over to the Romans to be executed. The absolute darkest stain on the entire nation, he takes that And uses that as the way that he's going to bless the entire world. Our expectation, my expectation, is that if God's going to use me, he's going to use me in some great, big, marvelous way that makes me look really good. And then after I win that award score that huge raise, catch that game-winning touchdown, that's never going to happen, but if, if, we're speaking hypothetically. Then I'm going to point up, and I'm, it's all Jesus. This is all from God. And people will look at me, and, oh, wow, he's amazing, God's amazing. That, that's my plan. That's my thinking. That's my understanding. God says, that's not... That's not how it works. God's glory shines so much brighter through our weakness than it does through our strength. But that just leads to a second objection. And that's where Paul goes next. But if our unrighteousness, verse 5, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say to that? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. If, okay, if you're saying, Paul, that God works through our weakness, that God is most glorified not by me being good, but he's almost more glorified by me being, being bad, then, then it doesn't make sense for him to judge me for those failures. If what you're saying is true, Paul, then God is being really, really unfair. If he's using us, how can we deserve his wrath? If God is glorified by my failures, then how can he, in any possible definition of the word fair, turn around and judge me for failing? 
And what Paul says is, by no means is God unrighteous. By no means. In no way. This is verse 6. By no means is like one of the strongest interjections. And Paul says, it's hard for translators to put it into English with the, the force that it would have. Just linguistically, it just doesn't carry over. But this is like the strongest. This is absolutely no. This is Paul's way of saying, no, that is not true at all. I'm not saying that at all. You're totally twisting what I've said. For then how, if that were true, how could God judge the world? How could God judge anybody? This is a complete misunderstanding of what it means for God to be glorified, to be, to be shown to be glorious. Look, it's God's perfection that qualifies him to be a judge. We are imperfect. We deserve judgment. The fact that God works through our imperfection does not excuse our imperfection. We deserve his judgment. We aren't... Let's, let's make sure we're really clear on this. And I apologize, even as I say it and talk about it, I, I worry because it's, it's, it's a difficult phrasing, but we have to thread this needle really well. We don't make God look good. Okay? In, in any way, we are not, in, in, our, in our goodness, in our, in our badness, whatever the opposite of goodness is, in our, our failures and our successes, none of those things are what makes God look good. God is good. The fact that his glory and his goodness shines brighter in comparison to us doesn't make us like an integral part in his goodness. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? We're just bad. Okay? And God is really, really good. He doesn't need us to make himself look better. Now, <clears throat> this gets into a really difficult theological area. And it's an area that a lot of people stumble over and, and, and so I'm going to dip my toe into it, and then I'm going to back up and go in a different direction and pretend this never happened, but I'm going to dip my toe into it anyway, okay? And it's the idea of God's sovereignty over everything, which is this, that God is completely in control of everything that happens, good and bad. And yet, and yet, at the same time, we also as humans make our own choices, the theological term for this is, is concurrence. And we believe that this is what scriptures teach over and over and over again. God is completely in control. Nothing happens outside of his plan for the universe. Nothing. And yet, at the same time, you do what you want to do. You're not a puppet. You're not being controlled. You're not being forced. You are making your own choices. And somehow, and this is where this is beyond me, 
and this is just this is what scripture teaches and it's crazy but i believe it's true god is still in control of everything god is completely in control and you and i make our own choices And so, I am, and you are completely responsible for the choices that you make. And deserving of whatever consequences, good or ill, come from those choices. And, at the same time, God is working in and through every single one of those choices to lead toward what he sees as the absolute best possible outcome. How are both of those things true? I don't know. If I knew, I think that would elevate my intellect to the level of God's. And that's not going to happen. But both are taught, and so we believe both are true. You are doing what you want to do, And God is completely in control of the universe. And ultimately, in spite of, or maybe through, our sin and our unfaithfulness, God will be glorified. But that just leads to the third objection. And what probably most of Paul's readers would have seen as the strongest, like we got you now, and honestly is one of the most enduring objections to Paul, period, to the gospel, period, that you probably have thought or heard yourself at some point. And it's this. Okay, Paul, If all the externals don't matter, if everybody's equal before God, and if God's working everything out the way he wants, however he wants, regardless of or or through my unfaithfulness, then it really sounds like the best course would be for me to go ahead and indulge in every single temptation, every single inclination towards evil or wrong as I can. Because from what you're saying, it doesn't bring me any closer to God to do good. And God's being glorified when I do bad. So shouldn't I just dive full on in? Be as bad as I possibly can, because that's just going to glorify God even greater? Paul, isn't what you are saying, isn't what you are teaching, seriously, a license to sin? Paul, and this is the objection, and you, if you've never heard this before, if you've never thought this before, at some point you will, because this is the number one objection to the pure gospel as it's actually taught in the New Testament. If God's love for us is all by His grace and not through our works or our merit, then why should we do anything good anyway? 
Shouldn't we just live completely and totally devoted to ourselves because God's going to use it and he's going to love us and he's going to forgive us for it anyway. Now Paul is going to get much deeper into this in chapter 8. And in fact, he really gives it a very brief answer here in verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come? If all that you're saying is true, Paul, then why don't we just live in the most evil way we possibly can? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. Paul says, nobody, hmm, nobody actually believes that. But they're charging us with teaching that. And his answer is just this. Their condemnation is just. They deserve to be condemned. The people who charge us with saying that deserve whatever they get. That's that's pretty harsh, Paul. We're going to get into this more later. But but here's the basic. It is true. We do not obey to earn God's favor. We obey because God loves us. The gospel, the truth, that Jesus Christ took our sin on himself. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. That if we trust in his sacrifice for us, our sins are covered. They are forgiven. They are never held against us anymore. Past, present, or future sins. And we don't earn that. We don't do anything to deserve that. And we don't have to do anything to maintain it or to keep a hold of it. It's his goodness that's counted towards us. That is all true. That doesn't lead to an absolute rejection of God. When we recognize, when we understand, when we embrace the idea that Jesus Christ laid down his life to cover over our sin, that does not... If we truly understand that, that does not lead us to want to sin more. When we look at the love, the absolute sacrificial love of a Savior who would bleed and die because of our sin, it doesn't point us to want to sin more. When we fall in love with Jesus because he's fallen in love with us, our love doesn't want us to to push him away. It makes us want to draw closer. When we understand the goodness of God, the God who is absolutely just to judge us, when we understand how much we absolutely deserve his wrath, his judgment, and yet, and yet, he sacrificed his son to absorb that wrath for us. We don't look at that God and say, I want nothing to do with you. We look at that God and say, tell me more. I want more of you. How can I know you more? How can I draw closer to you? What would you have me to do?
God's unearned mercy does not free us to disobey. It frees us into a deeper, more real obedience. Into an obedience that's not just an external, I'm trying to do what I have to do to earn what I want to get. And it's not a fearful, if I don't behave, if I don't obey, then it's all over. It's a free, absolutely trusting, because God loves me, I choose to follow him. Paul's main point through all of this, through all of these objections We are absolutely broken. And the world we live in is absolutely broken. But none of that nullifies the goodness of God. We disbelieve. We disobey. But he always keeps his promises. I want to look again, just to, to kind of close this out, at that phrase again, in verse, verses 3 and 4. Because I think this encapsulates all of this in such a beautiful way. And there's a reference here that I don't want us to miss. What if some, some of the Jews, some of God's chosen people, were unfaithful? It's what we would call one of those rhetorical questions which means this, what if some of God's chosen people were unfaithful? That's an ironic statement because all, all of God's chosen people at some point, many of them at many points, are unfaithful. All of us have been unfaithful. Does their faithlessness, does our faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? When I don't follow God, when I disobey, when I turn my back on him, does he turn his back on me? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you, talking about God, may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That line right there is a quote. It's from Psalm 51, which was a song written by a man named David. And there's a context to this quote. And I think the context to this quote is really, really important. Psalm 51 is a song that David wrote after one of one of the darkest periods of his life. It is possible you've heard this story before, but I'm just going to give you a summary of it in case you haven't, because you need to understand the context that Paul is bringing in here in answer to these objections. And understand that David, King David, is considered 
by the Jews to whom he's speaking to be like the greatest king in the history of all of Israel. He's a hero. Here's the story of what that hero did. It's in the book of 2 Samuel, I believe it's chapter 11 or 12. David, when he's supposed to be as a king leading his army in battle, stays home. And he sees a woman. Her name is Bathsheba. He sees her because of the elevation of his palace. He sees her on her rooftop bathing, which was actually a common practice in that day. And David being struck by her beauty, takes advantage of his position as the king and her lack of position to bring her into himself and to sleep with her, regardless of the fact that she is married and not to him. And she becomes pregnant. And David, in his shame tries to cover up what he's done. And he tries to manipulate his position as the king to try to cover it up and make it look like her husband, whose name is Uriah, is the one who got her pregnant. But it doesn't work out because at the time, Uriah was where David should have been fighting in battle with the nation of Israel. And so after a series of attempts to try to cover it up, fail, ultimately David does what he considers to be his last option, and he manipulates an entire battle so that Uriah gets placed into a vulnerable position and is killed in battle. And then David slides in, marries Bathsheba, and tries to make it look like everything's good. So he goes from unfaithfulness as a leader to adultery to murder and he's confronted by a prophet the prophet's name is Nathan and Nathan tells David this story this um, allegory if you will about a man who has a sheep a poor man who has a sheep and a rich man who comes and takes the poor man's sheep for himself And David sees the injustice of it. He's righteously indignant. How could anybody do that? That is so wrong. And then Nathan turns to him in this very strong moment and says, it's you. You're that guy. And David just falls apart because he sees it and he knows it and he understands. David was extremely unfaithful. And in his despair, oh wait, I left a part out. As a consequence of his sin, because of what he had done, the child that Bathsheba's carrying is born and dies within just a few days. And it's clearly stated by God through Nathan the prophet, this death of this child is your fault because of your sin. 
And in remorse, in pain, in anguish over what he's done, David writes Psalm 51. And he begs God for forgiveness. But in begging God for forgiveness, he says, I don't deserve it. You, God, are the one who is good. And he says, You may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. No one can claim that God is unjust, David is saying. God always does what is right. It is in the context of David's unfaithfulness that he writes these words that Paul references about God's faithfulness. David, one of the heroes of the Jewish faith, was unfaithful. And yet, God worked through him. God made promises to David. And even in spite of David's unfaithfulness, God kept his promises. One of the promises was that even in spite of his unfaithfulness, through his family line, his family would rule forever. And God kept that promise. Again, not in the way that David would have expected. Not in the way that anyone would have expected. But through Jesus, who came as a descendant of David. Why was God faithful to David? Why did God keep his promises I believe this is extremely important for us, so please hang on with me. Was it because David was a really great guy? Was it because, you may have heard this phrase before, if if you've been around church and you've heard much about David, there's this phrase that people use, and it comes from from Scripture. Was it because David was a man after God's own heart? There's a phrase that, that is used a couple of times to refer to David. He was a man after God's own heart. What does that phrase mean? Does it mean, and you may have heard it explained this way before, does it mean that even though David did some really bad stuff, his heart was always in the right place? Even though David really strayed far away from God, he always repented and turned back to God, and that showed that his heart was good. In spite of all the bad externals, David really was a good guy on the inside. I'm sorry, but the king whose derelict of duty, um, sleeping with another man's wife and then murdering that man to cover it up, his heart is really good is a bit of a stretch. I'm sorry. So what does it mean to say he's a man after God's own heart? It means, and if you, I don't want to get too deep into this, but you can follow this out yourself. That phrase, a man after God's own heart, 
is actually used prior to us in Scripture ever even meeting David. When God says, I'm going to choose a new king to replace the old king, the, the, now I feel like I'm getting too deep into the weeds, but just this, I, this is important. The, the present king, the current king, was a guy named Saul, and he had totally disobeyed. And God says, I'm going to choose a new king for Israel, and he's going to be a man after my own heart. You know what he means by that? He means, I'm going to choose who I want to choose. A man after God's own heart simply means this. David was chosen by God. It has nothing to do with David's heart. It has everything to do with God's heart. God was faithful to David because God had chosen David. Okay, where am I going with all this? What's the point? Why are you getting so... Here, here it is, and this is it. And please hear this and believe this and let this be what you take away. You look at your own life, you look at the world around you, and you see your brokenness, and you see the brokenness of the world, And you are tempted, and I am tempted, to believe that this whole thing is an inch away of just completely collapsing. That I better try harder. I've got to work harder. I've got to figure this out because it's all going to fall apart. And even when I believe, and even when you believe that God loves you, there's this piece of you that still believes, but what if? What if I mess it all up? What if I'm not good enough? God's plan God's goodness, God's faithfulness does not rest on you. It is not incumbent upon you to behave well enough, to believe rightly enough, to relate morally enough for God to be glorified. Do you hear the freedom in that truth? Not not the freedom to sin. This is what Paul's saying. The absolute freedom to follow God and trust Him and know that He is in control and He is faithful. It may not look the way you expect it to look. His promises to you aren't going to be fulfilled the way you think His promises to you should be fulfilled. But He is good. And the end of it all will be so much better than anything you ever could have written yourself. He is good. Even when we 
are not. Let's pray. We'll have a moment to reflect, and then we're going to share communion together. Heavenly Father, thank you. God, thank you for being you. Thank you for being good. Thank you for being faithful. Even when I am unfaithful. Especially when I fail. You are good. Your love and your mercy. I'm overwhelmed. I I don't deserve any of it. And you sacrificed your own son for me. Thank you so much. God, please, again, fill our hearts with that truth. Help us to see your goodness and your glory and your faithfulness. Help us to follow you completely and totally trusting in you, not at all in ourselves. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray.